You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 22 of the Crisis in the Church series. With this episode, we're starting our study of the period after the Second Vatican Council. Over the next 20 or so episodes, we'll be diving into topics like the Novus Ordo Mass, religious liberty, collegiality, the hermeneutic of continuity, phenism, obedience and its limits, setivacantism, ecumenism, infallibility, the new canonizations, supplied jurisdiction, and much more. But today, we'll start with the reforms that started to take place just after the Second Vatican Council. Father John Mark McFarland will take us through the immediate aftermath of the Council and show us how the Council and the spirit of Vatican II meant an immediate overhaul and a deformation of everything in the Church. If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the Church or go back and revisit our previous 21 episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now, we'll turn to our conversation with Father McFarland. Welcome back to the SSPX Podcast in our next episode of the Crisis in the Church series, welcoming Father McFarland from Our Lady of Sorrows in Phoenix. Hello, Father. How are you today? Doing well, Andrew. Good. Very good. And we are talking today about post-conciliar reforms, things that happened after the council. Uh, you and I were talking just a second ago before we started this, and, and I asked you, is it true, is it fair to say that the majority of the things that Catholics, that we Catholics see as problematic elements in the post-conciliar church, these didn't really happen during the council. They have, might have happened because of the council, but most of the innovations and changes and bad stuff <laughs> in a colloquial term that we see in the church today, that happened after the council, really. Is that correct? Definitely. So okay. you, the council is the, is the, the impetus is the, is the beginning, but it's, it's taken from there and, uh, advanced to a deg- great degree and certainly not everything that we see. Um, in fact, a relatively small percentage, I would say, perhaps surprisingly small percentage of those, the, the supposed reforms in the church are, are even mentioned explicitly in the council. Okay. So a lot of the reformations, a lot of the changes that happened are done under the guise or under the idea of the spirit of Vatican II. Uh, and this is something unique. We don't see a, the spirit of the Council of Trent. We don't see the spirit of the Council of Florence, but we do hear a lot about the spirit of Vatican II. So I guess we can start there. Right. And we certainly on, on our side, on the, the traditionalist side, we talk about things being justified, novelties being justified by this spirit of, of Vatican II, um, which we would say undoubtedly goes beyond the literal wording of the documents. And the reason we say that is because the modernists say precisely the same thing. You know, they'll, in talking about a particular reform, they'll say, well, this is, this might not be in Vatican II itself, but it's clearly in the spirit of Vatican II along the same lines. Uh, this is, this is, what the council wanted, even if it didn't say that directly. So this is almost a, a justification uh, that modernists are going to say, well, this wasn't really in the council documents, but in order to really fulfill the spirit, fulfill what happened there, we have to just keep going down this path. Right. Well, I mean, to look at the documents too, what there, there, there is an, an underlying spirit that's, that's there. Um, and, and it comes from this, you know, we're not, we're not defining things. We're not making dogmas clear. We have this, this idea of being pastoral, of somehow reaching out, opening to the world. And that's what's going to, um, that's what's going to drive this spirit. Um, for example, uh, just the idea of, of newness, 
the word novus or some some variation novus um, is appears 212 times in the Vatican II documents themselves. Right, the word means wow. new. Uh, that's way more than than any other council. Right? Paul VI said that that the word newness has been given to us as an order of program. Um, so we see even just in in that uh, choice of wording that that there's this drive towards something new that you can say is really the, the spirit of the council, even if it's not explicitly spelling out all of these particular new reforms. I've asked uh, uh, one or two of our other priests uh, a derivation of this same question, and that is why 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 did the why did the council fathers want this these changes these things to happen so i'll ask it to you in in this context father what what were they trying to do with making everything new uh did they just not like old stuff tradition i think it it depends on the individual individual council father probably a lot of them i were certainly just sort of along for the ride in the sense that they weren't pushing this but it seemed that this is what the pope wanted and so they went along with it um but plenty of them had this this real desire to to make a, a, a new church that was more focused on humanity, that was more um, in step with the with the philosophy and the general thinking of the modern world. They, uh, you know, for 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 various reasons, what those are, I you know would take a lot of research to try to sure <laughs> to figure out exactly what was behind uh, in each person's mind. But it's um, but they're you know, there is that that desire certainly to to be more in step with the modern world to 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 stop fighting effectively. And and the idea there is really to bring about a, a union or an ecumenism, a we, we would say a false ecumenism with other religions, with other peoples. Right. So a a, a kind of understanding, a kind of peace with everybody that's not founded uh, in the truth, that's not founded in the the peace brought by our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given in His Church. Um, but a new super church that that ultimately encompasses and, and brings in absolutely everybody um, without them having to do anything at all. Right. When, when you say super church, I, I, I kind of started giggling because I'm thinking it sounds like a Walmart super center. But <laughs> modern churches are kind of like that. They're just kind of big and open and there's greeters. And right. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. anyway. <laughs> All right. So, so this, this is the, this is the spirit of, of Vatican II. And this is something that kind of introduces us to what all the rest of the post-conciliar reformers are, are going to be doing. They're going to be taking these ideas that were present in Vatican II, and then they're going to be building on them. Uh, wh- where's the next step that we go? The next thing that's going to start really making some changes. Is it, is it modernism or? Uh, well, undoubtedly, so modernism uh, having its influence in in the council uh, through especially those those experts, the, the Pariti as we call them, um, the, the professional theologians who were uh, assisting particular bishops, and some of them uh, have had tremendous influence. Um, famous names: Bach, uh, Congar, Rahner, uh, Kung, who just died a couple of days ago. God rest mm-hmm. his soul. Um, yeah. and these men, um, were drawing on, on modernist influences by their own admission. And they were, they were the most influential men at the council. They're Karl Rahner, perhaps the most influential of all. 
So there's there's this connection between the neo-modernism that we studied, you know, four four or five episodes ago, um, and and the the characters you just mentioned, and and then the the reforms that are going to be following afterwards. Um, there's there's a historical connection, but there's also kind of a well a spiritual and ideological connection of between them too. Right, um, and you know. Undoubtedly, this the this this idea of, of newness, this man centeredness, is is being driven by by neo modernism. You can say neo modernism is this this mysterious spirit of the council. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that we have that that evident divergence in the council itself from the traditional way of thinking. You know, in those those original schemas that had been prepared prior to the council, and then the what we actually ended up with, with the new schemas and the new documents that were prepared uh, by the neo-modernists. So it's, it's something different. Um, and then after the council, right, we see the, the continued influence uh, of these men. Um, the official commentary of the, of the council texts cites Rahner 95 times, Congar 67 times, De Lubac 15 times, and St. Thomas comes in at 48 times. So that's... Huh. Um, Karl Rahner cited almost twice as often as the greatest theologian in the history of the Catholic church. Something, something seems a little off there. Well, I mean, I, I guess if you were an optimist, you'd say we're glad that he was mentioned at all, but <laughs> wow. So, so these neo-modernists, we, we saw how they had great influence in the council itself. They're going to have even more or equal influence in, in the period after the council in, in making some of these reforms happen. Right. Uh, 1966, Paul VI um, creates five commissions for the interpretation uh, of the council texts. Right. We need commissions to interpret the council texts. seems like there's probably some things that are unclear. Um, <laughs> and most of, the, most of the members of these commissions are, are former, former Pariti at the council. So some of the names that we've, we've just mentioned. So... Uh, Rahner and Dulebach, both named to the International Theological Commission. Um, Dulebach, um, von Balthasar, as well as Father Ratzinger, who was certainly a neo-modernist theologian, um, all named cardinals by John Paul II. Um, right, so Cardinal Ratzinger, the before becoming Pope, was um, one of the most influential men in the in the Curia, serving as the the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith the International Theological Commission and the Pontifical Biblical Commission. So, you know, that, uh, um, and you have the post-conciliar popes uh, expressing their admiration um, rather frequently for, for some of these modernist and neo-modernist thinkers. Right. It, w- it was interesting. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Kung uh, passing away just a couple of days ago. We're recording this here at the beginning of April. And um, it was, it was very interesting that you know he was condemned or censured, I believe, in 1979. I was just reading some articles about him, um, and on the day he died, the Pontifical Academy for Life, on their Twitter account, they they basically eulogized him, saying, "Well, he was he was a great thinker, and you know he made people think, made people kind of reflect on things." He was censured, <laughs> and and here we have a, an, an official arm of the Vatican basically praising him. So this these theologians even you know they they were condemned maybe not in name by Pius the 12th but they were condemned by Pius the 12th they were condemned even afterwards and 
they're still very active and they're still in, in high positions. Right. And Hans Kung's uh, censure was, was pretty mild too. So he was, uh, he was prohibited from teaching in seminaries or universities, but that was about it. He was still uh, entirely a priest in good standing, um, was able to, to preach, administer the sacraments and so on. Um, you know, and um, shortly after Benedict XVI was elected, they, they had a, a long lunch together in the, uh, in the Vatican, um, maybe talking about old times or something, but, you know, clearly he was not persona non grata. Right. He was still very much um, praised and, and thought well of uh, in many circles of the church. Um, so this is the spirit. These are the, these are the people who are involved. Um, let's get into some of the changes that happened, some of the more concrete changes, some of the examples that happened. Um, and we'll take a look at some of the church administration and policy that, that shifted after this time. Right. So again, you have this, this idea of newness and, and Paul the sixth himself. Uh, and it, it's, it's important to note that too. So the, 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 these, these experts, these theologians are, are, are driving the, the train from a, from a doctrinal, from an ideological point of view. Uh, nevertheless, the, 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 the Pope and the bishops are, are complicit. They're, they're giving these men the power that they have. These are the same bishops after the council that were, were at the council and active at the council who were then um, putting these new reforms in place in, in their dioceses, and especially Paul VI himself uh, introducing these changes in the universal church uh, and in Rome itself. So you have an, an overhaul in the first place of, of the curia, of the you know, those, those offices of the Vatican that are, are there to assist the Pope. Um, we had the, the Holy Office was the, um, that particular part of the Curia that was charged with, um, with doctrine. And um, it had been established in, in the 16th century for combating heresies and, and trying to suppress dangers to the faith. So in, uh, in 1965, um, it was it was changed. It was renamed the Congregation uh, for the Doctrine of the Faith, and um, the Index of Forbidden Books, over which it presided, was um, simply eliminated. At the, mm. um, so there'd be no more obligations in law uh, to to avoid reading certain works, whether heretical or immoral or whatever, and that uh, that had been a tool of the Holy Office, um, was now suddenly gone. Also, the, uh, the Holy Office, when it was investigating particular um, writers or uh, suspicion of heresy, they would conduct their investigations in secret so that their political pressure would not be brought to bear to prevent condemnations. Uh, that practice was also eliminated in that, that change in, uh, in 1965. So that, um, you know, now the, the, it would be, it would be known, uh, who was being investigated and that, uh, then, you know, say for example, if it's a Jesuit, the Jesuit superiors, or if it's a priest in a particular diocese, his bishop could then do what they could to, to, uh, to prevent a condemnation, um, of that priest in, uh, under their charge. Um, 
and the 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 holy office had been the the highest the office in the in, in the curia so all the others were subordinate to it and it was removed from that position and replaced with the secretariat of state uh which is which is quite telling the secretary of state involved with internal affairs of the church and external affairs of the church but is the it's really the diplomatic arm of the curia so you have diplomacy takes the place of doctrine it's a um, sort of summarizes the whole spirit of Vatican II uh, pretty well, if you ask me. It both in a real sense and also in a symbolic sense, it's it's saying doctrine is not the most important thing in the church anymore. Diplomatic things are the most important thing. So uh, the office that Cardinal Ottaviani was was heading up and that he you know was was fighting to keep tradition alive and keeping uh, keeping doctrine pure, not not really that important anymore. Right. To it moving into secondary importance. Wow. Um, in terms of of council teachings, there so Dignitatis Humanae is talking about you know how how there should be more of a uh, ability for people to choose their own religion and live in peace, etc. But um, the the Vatican after the Second Vatican Council is going to take what Dignitatis Humanae said and then it's going to really put it into practice. Is that a fair way of saying that? Yes. And I'm, and more clearly than, than Dignitatis Humanae expresses it. Um, okay. So it, it's, it's fairly vague and qualified in Dignitatis Humanae, but after the, the, the council, the Vatican is um, urging the secularization of Catholic states. That is no longer recognizing the, the church, the Catholic church as the, the one official religion of their particular state, as it was uh, in Spain um, or, or in Italy, uh, South, the South American nations, a few of them. Um, you had the, the the Concordat, the agreement with the government of Italy that had been made in 1929 was entirely renegotiated. Those negotiations finished in 1984, um, in which that, that principle that the the Catholic Church is the the one official religion of the Italian state is is no longer held to be in force. So it's it's set aside and with with disastrous results. We have um, you know Italy now you have um, divorce and you have one of the lowest birth rates in the world and you, you know, and there are other factors playing into that certainly but definitely there are the this removal of the, the place of the church in the, in the life of, of Italian civil society is going to contribute to that. When you hear about this and, and you hear this just kind of breaking apart of, of the kingship of, of Christ, uh, you can you can now see more clearly why Archbishop Lefebvre wrote They Have Uncrowned Him. You know, that... that right. That, right. And so you're, you're effectively the, making the statement that um, our Lord doesn't have a particular place in in civil life, except insofar as he influences individuals, right. which is simply false. If, if men individually have to follow Christ, then men collectively have to follow Christ. Uh, and so this, this, um, this certainly undermines that reality. Um, if it doesn't outright deny it, but it looks an awful lot like a denial. Right. And it's, it's one thing to say that, you know, in many places at the moment, it's not practical. Uh, practicable, you know, that the states resisted and so on. It's quite another thing to simply 
acquiesce to that as if it were some kind of ideal that we're all freer and more mature now. Um, modern man is is understanding himself and his world better, which is just nonsense. And we see it in the the absolute doctrinal relativism in the modern world, and we see it in the moral relativism as well. I mean, the 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 absurdities of of um, homosexual marriage or all this transgender nonsense or the the promotion of abortion and contraception these things that are destroying human society around us um they come from this 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 mentality not saying it started at this moment but it's this mentality in in the world at large and here invading the church that that have led us to these these disasters on the moral and social levels right it's it's the it's the uh, it's the conflict between the two words, the religious toleration versus religious liberty. Those right. two don't mean the same thing. <laughs> and this is this is impossible. The, this acceptance is impossible without dignitatis humani. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's all justified by appeal to the council. This is what the council wants. Right. So you can you can torture up orthodox explanations for for what it says in Dignitatis Humanae, well, maybe if it means this, you know, the sort of it's accidentally infallible thesis, which is an impossibility, but that's a discussion for another time, uh, to to say that, well, you know, there, there can be an orthodox interpretation of it. How does Paul VI interpret it? Right? The Pope who signed it and pushed it through, how does he interpret it? He interprets it as uh, states should no longer be Catholic. And we have, we do not have Catholic states left in the modern world. What about the religious orders? Do they stay intact at all during this during this time? A little bit of a leading oh, well. question there. A <laughs> uh, little bit. Uh, I mean, anybody with any experience of, of religious orders in, in the modern church, you know, knows what's going on there. And in, in the introductory, uh, the very first podcast we did, where we talked about the crisis in the church, we talked about some of that, that falling apart of, of religious life. Um, so at, after the council, every religious order was required to hold a, a special general chapter to to update their constitutions to bring them in line with Vatican II, the Vatican II decree uh, perfecti caritatis, dealing with with the religious orders. So, um, you know, even the Carthusians, who had, of whom it was said that never never reformed because never deformed, hmm. they asked for an exemption from a special chapter. They said, "There's nothing wrong with our constitutions. We don't have any problems. We'd like to keep it." They were that permission was refused, uh, and they had to make changes, liturgical changes, some disciplinary changes, um, you know. And, and we see there's a, a defining of religious life in reference to man rather than to God, to the service of human beings rather than the the glory given to God by the the consecration uh, of a soul, especially to Him by the, the vows of religion. Right, and we know, of course, we uh, I think most of us have that firsthand experience with with some of those changes, the the elimination of, of religious habits or the uh, the very occasional wearing of religious habits. We break them out for special occasions, dust them off, and put them on. But in general, we're walking around in you know cargo shorts and Hawaiian t-shirts or or whatever, or right. you know, nuns, nuns in pantsuits uh, and the like, right? and and living outside community as well. So we will eliminate everything that makes a, a distinction between the religious and the secular. So I was you know, talking to someone one time who was telling me about a relative of hers and you know who was a religious and said, oh, and she's, she, she belongs to this, this great order where she, 
she doesn't have to live in community. She has her own apartment. She doesn't have to wear a habit. She can dress how she wants. And I, what's the point? Right. Why, why, if, if your life is going to be exactly the same as everybody else's, why would you become a religious? Yeah. And that's what the entire world has been asking. And nobody's becoming religious. I mean, how orders are dying out uh, all around the world because nobody, nobody wants to do that. Right. Even even the notion of obedience is is undermined. It's it's a it becomes a dialogue, right? dialogue between the superior and the inferior to determine God's will, which is you know again you see that spirit of the council, which I think used the word dialogue twenty eight times. Uh, that, this word that never been used in the before in the the history of magisterial documents. Um, so it's a you know to this is right in line again with the with this spirit of Vatican II, appealing to the council. It's about dialogue. It's about man. And so we overhaul religious life along those lines as well. But you're just so much more approachable when you wear cargo shorts, father. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Um, Sorry. So, all right. So those are just a few of the changes in church administration and church policy. Um, For the last section of things I wanted to chat with you about today, father, um, how they get this modernism, how they get the council into the lives of the faithful, because those things are, you know, how the, how the church is organized and structured and those types of things. Now let's talk about how do we, the faithful get touched by Vatican II. Um, there's obviously going to be the new mass. That's not something that we're going to get into today. That's right. we're going to do That's several episodes on that more than several. Um, but how else is, is the, is, are the post-conciliar reforms going to be touching the lives of the faithful? Well, obviously the new mass, that's everybody's, you know, sort of weekly contact with, uh, with the, with the church, if we can express it that way. So that's sure. going to be the biggest thing by far, um, and rightly deserves its own treatment. Uh, the teaching of catechism is, a hmm. um, is another way so that you have the, the production of these catechisms that are again, in, in line with and justified by the, the spirit of Vatican II, you know, where. It's, it's not going to be dogmatic. It's going to be, you know, man-centered. It's going to be um, more towards the leading towards the ideas of religious experiences rather than objective facts. Um, so the, the very worst one is the, the infamous Dutch catechism, um, which, uh, you know, des- denies any number of, of dogmas, right? the incarnation, the real presence, uh, the ministerial priesthood, the existence of angels. Um, and, and here, this to give you an idea of how, how things work in the modern church. So the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, the former Holy office condemns the Dutch catechism, but on go the political machinations and so on. And the congregation for the doctrine of faith allows the Dutch catechism to be printed, provided that the condemnation is included in the catechism as an appendix. Because that'll help. I, I guess. <laughs> okay. So and there it's, it has outright heresy and it's, it's allowed to, I mean, you can still find it now. I mean, in Catholic bookstores, I mean, the more Orthodox ones won't carry it, but it's still out there. It still exists. So what, what, just for a, a step back on this, Father, I have a question on the, when you say the Dutch catechism, is this the catechism for the for the, the Dutch speaking world or is it in the, okay. So this is the translation so for, produced by the, by the, the catechism that was produced by the Episcopal conference for the Netherlands. 
Okay. Okay. Um, so that, you know, another thing we could have touched on is the, the, uh, the rise of Episcopal conferences as having real power and so on. And, and their, their battles with, uh, with even the relatively mildly exercised authority, uh, of the curia in, in the last 50 years. But, um, but so at the beginning you had individual, you know, shortly after Vatican II, you had individual Episcopal conferences, uh, producing their own catechisms. The Dutch okay. Catechism far and away the worst. So uh, this would the, be like the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops producing a catechism for all of the dioceses in the United States to use. This is something yeah, like that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, and wow. then the, the French the French bishops had one produced as well, which was called Living Stones. Also um, had plenty of heresies in it. Um, Cardinal Ratzinger, then the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, um, denounced it and then withdrew his comments after the the French bishops jumped to its defense. Diplomacy wow. over dogma. Wow. I mean, it, it seems like they want to still do what's right, but then as soon as they face any kind of pushback whatsoever, it's, oh, no, 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 well, then it's okay. You know, we'll go ahead and let you publish it with an appendix. No, we'll, we'll let the French bishops go ahead and publish this one, even with heresies. It's, um, okay. we, can, we can come to a sort of compromise which basically involves us getting entirely run over and trying to have some little face saving measure attached to it. Maybe. Wow. Okay. And that's, you, you can't, you can't negotiate. You can't act diplomatically with the revolution. It doesn't work. They just right. want to cut your head off. So, <laughs> uh, uh, and then you oh. do have the, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So this is the official one produced at Rome. Um, it does reveal a certain conservatizing evolution, you might say. So produced under John Paul II, uh, with the influence of, of then Cardinal Ratzinger, Benedict XVI. Um, but again, it, it is it is meant to be uh, an expression of the spirit of Vatican II. So John Paul II, together with the liturgical form and the, reform and the new code of canon law, the new catechism gives a solid foundation to the ecclesiastical reform started by the council. So, um, and the catechism in large part is a stringing together of Vatican II quotations. And there's plenty of things in there that are absolutely orthodox. It doesn't have any of the, the really shockingly heretical things that are in um the dutch or the french catechisms okay. um but there are there are certainly problematic passages you know for example the old testament is an indispensable part of sacred scripture its books are divinely inspired and preserve permanent value that's fine but because the old covenant has never been revoked right. okay. it's misleading certainly uh right. to imply that the old covenant is still in force which it's not it has been superseded by the coming of Jesus Christ. Um, and that is the constant teaching of the church throughout 2000 years. So, um, or the divisions between Christians hold the church back from realizing the plenitude of Catholicity, which is proper to it in those of her children who it is certain belong to it by baptism, but who find themselves separated from full communion, right? That comes straight from Unitatis Red Integratio, uh, the Vatican II document on ecumenism. Um, but it, it quotes it verbatim. Uh, and the failure of 
those calling themselves Christians to enter into the Catholic Church or they're breaking away from the Catholic Church does not deprive the church of her Catholicity. That's right. Uh, and you have this, the introduction of this notion of full and partial communion, which is not a traditional notion, which is introduced at Vatican II and was never before seen in the history of the church. But why not, so there, why not put it in now? That's fine. Right. Well, it, it goes, again, it goes along with this in the, the whole ecumenical thrust of, of the council and the spirit of the council. Right. Wow. Well, it's it's fascinating. This has just been a quick look at at some of the changes that happened after Vatican II, and, and we can see it's it's just going to continue to snowball. These are some of the early changes that happened directly after the Council, um, and and it really is striking because there's not when you take a step back and look at it. Um, you know, I was born in '82. I was born after a lot of this stuff happened, um, but when you take a step and look back, there's nothing in the Church that hasn't been touched by this spirit of Vatican II or by this is, this is a complete revamp of the Catholic church in its hierarchy and its governance in its way of doing things in the catechism and the everything, everything. Right. And it, and it reaches down and touches everything as, you know, talking about the, um, you know, getting, getting into the liturgical form later, but, um, churches are different. They look different. Mm -hmm. You know, you go inside a, a church that was built a hundred years ago versus a church that was built, 30 years ago, they're strikingly different. Vestments are different. Um, the music is different. The, the daily life of Catholics, the, the, the practice of devotions, um, the books they read, it, it's all different. It all had to be changed. And all of that is justified in the name of the spirit of the council. Yeah. Well, it was worth it. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Sorry. It's really made things an awful lot better, hasn't it? <laughs> right. It has. I mean, again, going back to our very first episode, this is, th there's, there's a disaster in the church and you would, and I, I think I mentioned this during our first, our first conversation, you would think that they would take a step and look and say, maybe we should go back. Maybe we should try to fix things. Right. And part of the, part of the problem is this, this, um, you know, this obsessive notion of, of trying to salvage the council. Um, yeah. you know, there is, there is a, a hermeneutic of, of continuity, uh, that, you know, if, if you have a hermeneutic, it means that something needs to be interpreted. Um, right. and if your, your authoritative counsel needs to be, needs a system of interpretation, then it's not very authoritative. Um, right. there's something fundamentally wrong with it, but to try to salvage it and say, no, the problem wasn't the council. It was how people applied the council, but it's, it's the same ideas that are influencing those things that are different and new in the council and those reforms afterwards. And it's the same people doing both, right? right? It's the same theologians. It's the same bishops. It's the same Pope. Paul the sixth is, is Pope for another 13 years after the, the close of the council. Right. And, and John Paul, the second was a, was a, a bishop at the council. Benedict the 16th was the theologian at the council. It's the same people implementing the, these reforms. So to, you know, to say that it was somehow hijacked, who did the hijacking from whom did they hijack? Right. right? It's, it, it's, there's continuity there, right? right? It, it does get worse. There are people who, who want to put the brakes on to some extent, and there are those who want to, to go full steam ahead. But, um, but fundamentally you're, you're, it's being driven by the same, same ideas and the same people. 
on a, on a micro level, it's very similar to the, to the people who say, you know, when, when Pope Francis says something that's, that's weird or troublesome or, or makes people say, you know, well, he's, he, he's a heretic or something. Um, they'll say, oh, well, you're just interpreting him badly. Well, but then he shouldn't have said something that could have been, could have been misinterpreted. Like the, right. the problem is not with my interpretation. The problem is with the statement. And if it's causing a worldwide scandal, he should probably clarify what he means. Right. Which he doesn't do. Right. So in the same way, well, we're just interpreting the council bad. You know, people are just interpreting the council badly. The council's fine. No, the problem is with the council. Right. Right. It's there are fundamentally flaws. If it's uh, fundamental flaws, if it's so easy to interpret it so incorrectly. Right. Right. Well, Father, this has been fascinating. Thank you for taking us through through these uh, post conciliar changes. Um, like I said, we're going to go through a lot more of uh, the liturgy that was. Uh, that's it's a great way of, that you said it. Uh, this is the way that it's going to touch people's lives every week. Uh, sadly, a lot less than once a week nowadays, but be that as it may. Um, so we're going to take a lot of time and go through that, and, and we'll look forward to having you on for another episode here later on. I look forward to it too, Andrew. Thank you very All much. Right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 22 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. In episode 23, we'll continue with the theme of the post-conciliar reforms and have our first of four episodes on the Novus Ordo Mass. Father Reuter will join us to discuss how the new Mass was constructed in order to appeal to non-Catholics. Truly, it was an ecumenical Mass. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you might think would enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.